Okay, Mark chapter number one. Mark chapter number one. Don't forget about uh, Sunday church, uh, back to normal, I think, and then Memorial Day weekend will be 10 years for us here at this facility. So uh, we'll have uh, maybe a cake or something, probably not, but we'll have, we'll say something about it on that date. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I feel a Costco red velvet coming on, or chocolate. Yeah, there you go. All right, Mark chapter 1, if you will, we'll get into our lesson here. This is, I believe, our fifth lesson. Uh, we got down through verse number 8 last time. Uh, so I want to go back and start reading in verse 4, uh, kind of clean some things up a little bit, and then uh, move on and, and hopefully get down through verse 13. And uh, here, because in verse 14... Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And it, because instantly we're into the Lord's earthly ministry. Um, verse number four, let's just start there. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin and his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Uh, he's dressed like the prophet Elijah. Uh, he... Uh, is coming in the spirit of Elijah. We've talked about that in the past. Actually, the Lord says to Israel, if you had responded positively to his message and my message, then he would have been what Malachi 4 said was Elijah who was going to be coming before the great notable day of the Lord. So here he is. Uh, his, it's, it's interesting. His clothing is described for you. Uh, John is family is of the Levite family. Luke 1 tells us that. And yet here he is not dressed in temple garb, but rather dressed um, in uh, what, uh, like pro the prophet Elijah. So he should have been in the city. He should have been in the temple, but yet he's out in the wilderness. He's outside of the camp. He's demonstrating the apostate uh, condition of the priesthood. So he, he's abandoning that priesthood. He is where Hosea 2 says, uh, we saw, I think, last time, salvation is, is going to come from the wilderness. They're going to come and speak comfortably and so forth. Verse 7, and preached, saying, there cometh one mightier than I after me the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, I know last time we didn't do a lot of talking about verse 7 and 8, but just notice this uh, here. When he says, there cometh one mightier than I. John, come over with me to Jeremiah 31. John understood he understands who the Messiah is and what he's going to do. Um, in John 1, they ask the question, are you the Messiah? 
And he says, no, I am not the Messiah. He understood that the Messiah was going to come and deliver and take care of the nation of Israel. His job is to be the crier, the preparing the way. If you look here at Jeremiah 31, when he says, there's one that cometh after me who's mightier than I, John 31, verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. That is the prophecy of the regathering of the nation of Israel. Verse Verse 9, They shall come with weeping, And with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. That that walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, that's what Psalms 23 is all about. Here's the kingdom. Here's what the Messiah is going to do. Now watch verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say. So now he's turned and talking to the Gentiles. He that scattereth Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. He says, God's, I'm going to scatter Israel out amongst you Gentiles. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come in and I'm going to regather her back when it's time. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him, that's Jacob, that's Israel, from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Israel literally has been sold off into Gentile captivity. Actually, it's really he that's mightier than... or a hand of him that was stronger. That goes over there to Matthew 12 when he talks about the strong man and defeating that. He, when the Messiah comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to gather up Israel and he's going to defeat the one that literally holds Israel in captivity. That's the adversary, Satan. Israel is literally held in the clutches of satanic captivity um, and they're out there among the Gentiles. The, the nations, uh, when, when God scattered the nations out there, he assigns those different gods, the little g's to them, and Israel sits in that Baal system. And he says, I'm going to redeem them. So when you come back to Mark 1, when he says, hey, one mightier than I is coming after me, John comes and says, look, there's a mightier one, the one that's going to actually has the ability to redeem you. I can't redeem you. John knows he's just a man, but he knows who's coming. The Lord, Jehovah, the Messiah, here he comes. And I'm here to announce him. I'm here to tell you about him coming. Then he says, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Now, that's a verse, that's part of that verse everybody just kind of crawls over and keeps going. Because they don't understand what taking your shoes off in Scripture is all about. When you see that issue about whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose, 
He's talking about what we learn in Ruth 4 about the kinsman redeemer. So come back with me to Ruth 4. And I only do this because I know Ruth is prevalently on your thinking and in your mind. And you can make this connection. I told the guys uh, at the men's fellowship a couple, our, two, our last weekend, that uh, you got to keep all this stuff running around in your head to make the connections. And the looks that I got was like, really? <laughs> That's what you're here for, <laughs> you know? Because if you don't, then what happens is, is when you get to reading the stuff and studying it, you miss the significance of it. We all know the story of Ruth, okay? And Naomi comes, and Ruth is her daughter-in-law, the, and, and actually uh, Naomi's husband, Ruth's, or Naomi's husband and sons die. She releases the daughters. Uh, Ruth stays. She knows. They go into town, they get back to town, and then Boaz shows up, and Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. So the issue of unloosing the shoes and stuff is connected with the kinsman redeemer issues. Okay, Under the kinsman redeemer, there are three issues. One, you had to be the nearest kin. Two, you had to be able to redeem. And then three, you had to be willing to do it. All right? So Boaz is said to be the nearest kin, but someone nearer to Naomi, thus Ruth, shows up. So verse 6, Ruth 4, verse 6. And the kinsman said, so this, so if you think about Naomi, Ruth is representing Naomi and the family, all right, to raise up a generation, a seed of the, keep Naomi's and her family's name going. Boaz is said to be the nearest kin. But someone did, someone else shows up and says, wait a minute, do you remember, oh, buddy, buddy Joe over here? Because he's nearer than Boaz. So what do they do? They go to the nearest kinsman and say, will you redeem Ruth? Thus Naomi, do them both. Well, verse 6, the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I mar my own inheritance, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So what's he say? I'm not able. I'm not willing. I am the nearest kin, but I'm not willing and I'm not able because it'll mess up what I got going on. Verse 7. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing for to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. What, what's going on? They're in the gate. They're down in front of the magistrates. And what's the guy do? I can't do it, and I'm not going to pull my shoe off. I'll never get it back on. I he, pull, he pull, took, unloosed, unlatched his shoe, hands it to Boaz. There, verse 8, therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Deuteronomy and Exodus there, Moses. By the way, this is a move back. You go back to Deuteronomy 25, and Moses lays this into the law. You go back there to Exodus 3, and Moses... He goes up to the burning bush, and what does the Lord say? 
Take off your shoes. Why? You're on holy ground. Now, when you read and listen to people talk about that, they got some weird ideas about it. But in Scripture, if it's holy ground, why in the world would he tell him to take off his shoes and then let him walk around it and walk in un walk in sinful flesh on holy ground. That doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't, okay? The ground that that burning bush sat in was important to Israel as it is going to come to represent the Abrahamic covenant. In Scripture, by the way, the, the thing that represents Israel is not the star of David that sits on their flag today. By the way, Acts calls that the star of Moloch. It's pagan. In Scripture, the burning bush is what represents the nation of Israel. Anyway, what is, he tell, what is going on with Moses? Think about it. Has Moses been where he's supposed to be, or is he where he's not supposed to be? He's on the back end. He ain't supposed to be back there. He's supposed to be down functioning as a deliverer. So when he says, take your shoe off, Moses, it's because Moses isn't functioning properly. What's the kinsman doing here in Ruth 4? He can't function. So he's doing what? Taking off his shoe. Come back to Mark 1. It's a picture of I failed to do. So when John says this, he understands what? I can't do it. I'm not worthy. He's the one that's going to do it. I can't do it. So he says, I, whose shoe I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I can't even, I'm not even in the same conversation. Now it's interesting, Matthew 3, Luke 3, and John 1 all record this event. All four Gospels, they all say the same thing. It's found in all of them. Why? Because it's demonstrating the understanding that John had that he was not the Messiah. And that the Messiah is coming. And I can't be the kinsman redeemer. See? It's the one, it's the one that I'm pointing you to. He's the one. I can't be. So when they ask him, are you the Christ, are you this or that? And he says, no, why? Because John can't die for the sins of humanity. He's not the kinsman redeemer. You follow that? Verse 8, I indeed have baptized you with water. We'll talk about that a little more here. But he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. That'll happen in Acts 2. Matthew 3 records the next part of that verse where he says, and he will also baptize you with fire. Well, the servant, i.e. Mark here, has no judgment capacity, authority. So he cannot say, I'm going to baptize you with fire, because a servant doesn't do that. But Matthew 3, picturing him as the king, the king sure enough has the authority to hand out the judgment. See, But what, what do we have here? 
we have John say, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Now, if you think uh, uh, what we talked about last time, we know that issue in Israel, if you remember, they're the vine, right? Isaiah 5. Part of the nation of Israel has become apostate. There's this little, this nation within the nation, okay? There's this believing nation, we call it the believing remnant, the little flock. They've got a door here to get in, okay? And they're sitting here, John the Baptist, the Lord, the Twelve. There are other members of the little flock. Hey, get out of that untoward generation. Get in here. And what you have to remember, we looked at this last time, Luke 7. Look over there at Luke 7. Just remind yourself, because we're going to talk about John the Baptist here and a little bit about water baptism. We'll do more next time. Because water baptism becomes important here, but you have to understand the, 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 the backstory. So, what you have is a believing nation within the apostate nation, all right? You have a believing element, and you have the apostate. By the way, this, none of this should be new to anyone, because when Moses takes them out of Egypt, he calls them a mixed multitude. Mixed. Unbelievers and believers. It's a mixed group. You know, I, I read a guy one time a couple years ago. I was reading about doing some studying, going to do some stuff about Israel. And uh, he, he was talking about that mixed group of being wealthy and the poor. And I'm like, because the, the poor you will have always with you. So see, it's a mixed group. And I'm like, no, it's not. I, I shut the book down. I got mad at it. Took it out and used it for my bow and arrow, my archery practice, you know. But it's not, it's, I didn't, I'm just kidding, <laughs> you know. It's unbelieving Israel and believing Israel. When you talk about John the Baptist, when you're dealing with John the Baptist, you have to remember Luke 7, verse 29 and 30, because John the Baptist is the dividing mark. He's the point, that's why Mark starts with him in the beginning, bam, right now we're into John right off the bat because that's the dividing mark between apostate Israel and the believing remnant. And what water baptism does is it identifies the group that acknowledge their need to repent and when John goes out and baptizes, what he's doing is he's outwardly demonstrating that issue that these folks know that they need to be repent in order and, and so forth. Look at Luke 7, 29. And all the people that heard him and publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. There's the mark. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Unbelieving and believing. Go back to Mark 1. 
So when we get in here now in verse 9, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan, it's time. The timeline is ticking here. He's 30 years old. It's time to get started. It's time to go. It's time to move. Now, again, in Mark, we're just we're there instantly. Luke takes about a chapter and a half to get him here. John takes a, couple, a, a whole of a chapter to get him here. Matthew takes actually two chapters to get him here. Mark is here. He's been in Nazareth, and now it's time to go. Now you think about Nazareth. The, 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 the one guy says, anything good ever come out of Nazareth? See, he's in that little, he, he's, he steps out of being undiscovered. He steps out of solitude now. He steps out of, a, he comes from an undistinguishable place where he's been living. And now he's going to move on to the stage of the nation. No more, he's no longer obscure. Everybody's going to know about him. Even so that, you, if you remember, uh, Herod wanted to meet him. He had heard about everything he was doing. I want to meet this guy. Even the big, he had been found, all of the politicians of the day knew him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyer, that group. So he does this. He comes to Galilee. Uh, actually, he comes from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John and Jordan. Now, he does this. He comes to be baptized, and it's going to be the baptism of John, and that's going to then identify the Lord Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel as being their Messiah. And it's the first step and really many here, in making him known to everyone, to the nation now. Because what are we doing? We're establishing the believing remnant. It starts here with John the Baptist. Now we're going to move to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're going to have the 12. And as we develop this baptismal issue here, we're going to see that, you know, I, somebody asked me one time about the 70, you know, because he sends 70 out. In Scripture, 70 has an, a, a, a numerical issue, but when you think about it, where were, who were the 70? That's those guys, see? It's not, I mean, it's a special thing, yes, okay, but in reality, it isn't very special. It's go do your job. Your job's to get out here in the apostate nation, get them to come through the door. And you'll notice I got everybody going in one side. Look over with me to, to uh, so he comes. And uh, he's going to be identified, come over with me to John 10. He's going to be identified with that believing remnant. Notice John 10. Very, very instructive. When we went through John, we spent several weeks, many moons, several weeks here looking at this issue. John 10, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. 
Okay? So, this group of people here are called a sheepfold. There's a door into the sheepfold. The apostate is going to try to climb over the wall and come in. Verse 2. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he had put forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So what do we have? We have a sheepfold, we have a door, we have a porter, porter, porter man. And we have a shepherd. Who's the porter? John the Baptist. Who's the shepherd? The Lord Jesus Christ. What's the door? The door is water baptism. As we're going to see as we go along this, mor this evening. This morning. 7.30 at night this evening. So there's a sheepfold. The true shepherd's going to use the door. That's water baptism. John the Baptist, he's the porter. He's the one that's going to open the door. The false guy, guess what he's going to do? Luke 7.30. He's going to reject the baptism. Okay, come over to, uh, come back to Mark 1 and watch this happen. Mark 1. Verse 10, And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. None of the, you don't have any of the fanfare like you do in Matthew and Luke and John. Just boom, straightway, bam, 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 it's done, okay? But come over to Matthew 3 because you've got to see what's going on there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Because you've got to pay attention to what's happening here, even though Mark just real quickly moves in it, because John the Baptist is that dividing mark. He's that point in time beginning here. You know, the law and the prophets were until John, and now John's going to be preaching this thing about being baptized for the remission of, uh, baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. What's all that about? Where did that come from? Now, water baptism is not new to Israel, but this component of it is new to them. Mark, or, I'm sorry, Matthew 3, look at verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan. By the way, notice Nazareth is not listed there because Nazareth is, it, it's no big deal. to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. You see, John knows who the Lord is. He knows that he's, he's the one that ought to be down on his, in his face in the dirt. 15, And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Suffer it. Get it done. Why? Because we have to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus went, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, 
And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice what's happening in verse 15. The point here. The point here is, is that suffered to be so. Why? Because we have to fulfill all righteousness. You see, the kingdom is going to be built on righteousness. The foundation of of the kingdom that's going to be given to the nation of Israel is the issue of righteousness. So he starts out by doing, by coming to the door. Whoops, wrong one. By, by be, he starts out by coming to the door the right way. He get, he's going to be identified with the little flock. In Isaiah, he says he's numbered with the transgressors. And the, the issue is that thing there in verse 15, and that is to fulfill all righteousness. So what you see here by the Lord going and being baptized is he really, it's an act of submission to the will and the plan of the Father to get on with the program. This is what the program requires me to do. I'm going to go do it. John, let's get her done. So they do. Now, come back there to Mark 1. Again, it's important to see what's going on here because Mark just jumps in it. He doesn't give you all of that. He just on it, okay? Um, verse 10. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heaven uh, open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Uh, again, we're talking about um, baptism, water baptism. And uh, what you have is uh, great discussion in theological circles and in religion over the years about the issue, issue of baptism. And uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, when the Roman Catholic Church established the seven sacraments back in the 4th and 5th century, the Protestants took two of them with them, water baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. And, uh, the, the, and what they begin to do now is the Protestants begin to develop some new ideas about water baptism. One, you know, it says, hey, this is how a person is born into the family of God. This is how a person is regenerated into the family of God. And, and then another group says, no, it just symbol, makes a symbolization of the out, it was an outward activity of the inward faith. <laughs> and some other groups come along and they'll say, well, wait a minute, water baptism really is a means of grace and of gaining status and acceptance with God. Another group comes along and says, no, water baptism is important because it, it's, it's a part of the covenant relationship with God you know, the Calvinistic ideas and so forth. And you just scratch your head because when you come to Scripture, that has nothing to do with any of it. Now, the Greek word for baptism or baptize is, is baptize. Okay? It's just spelled different. And that's how I'm going to pronounce it. I know it's pronounced baptizo or something like that. Okay? Because when you come to that Greek word, baptizo, all right, the... It's transliterated, not translated, into English. In other words, they took that spelling and moved it right over into English. All right? 
that when you read that word baptize or baptism or all that, that is exactly what the Greek word is. There's no myth. There's no, ooh, that's what it is. And it really, in Scripture, the easiest way to define baptism is the word identify or identification, okay? There, uh, Charles Baker's dispensational theology book, he's got, I think, 12 different baptisms listed. Well, when you look at them, really there's maybe five or six, and you just draw out a few extra more, and that's fine, okay? If you, if you, use, the word, if you use the word baptism in your name, okay, then you're going to get your identification from what? Baptism. If, if you're, um, by the way, if you're a Baptist, that's what you do. If you're a Methodist, even though you're baptized, you don't get your identity there. You get it somewhere else. <laughs> and you just get them all. But then, so what does it mean in Scripture identify, to identify? Actually, the Greek, in the Greek, that the, the word baptism mean, it means to dip or to stain with a dye. So how you dip something in a stain, what are you going to do to its appearance? You're going to change it, see? By the way, when you dip something, you dip it and you come it out with it, okay? Because the question is, what does it mean? Well, we don't care what it means. How do you do it? <laughs> so you've got the meaning and the mode, as they like to say. How do you do it? Well, some immerse, some sprinkle. You know the Roman Catholics do both? Depends on who's, who it's being done to. Because a baby, you don't want to immerse and then pull her, okay? So then what do they do? Well, in COVID, they squirt them with the squirt gun from across the room. <laughs> Six feet away. I don't know if you saw that on Facebook. Hey, Facebook, just the genius of man is phenomenal, you know? But they, but they do. But when you come to Scripture, that's really, baptism doesn't mean to immerse. When you immerse something, you know what you do? You submerge it. There's nothing in the meaning of the word baptism that indicates to take it out. So think about baptism in denominations, and what do they do? They put them down underneath all the way, and then they bring them out. Do you know baptism, the word, nowhere is defined the issue of bringing them up? Even the Greek, if you're going to dip something to dye it, you're going to dip it, you're going to do what with it? You're going to leave it there for whatever, and then pull it out. So if I took you, put you down in a baptismal, and then left you there, how long are you going to make it? A couple minutes, maybe? See, so when you begin to look at some of this, it's not an it's not an it's a immersion, but it's also a immersion. You gotta e get them out, you know. Uh, one of the funniest things I ever heard of was uh, a guy was baptizing this guy. Dad was dad said this one time, and uh, it was a big guy and a little preacher. So guess what? The little preacher was having problems doing with the big guy, getting him back up. Again, that's just all hoodly do. It's all denominational human viewpoint. 
So to say it's immersion is a problem. Because if you emerge something, you're going to leave it there. There's nothing about bringing them back up. And in 1.10, look at 1.10 here, Mark 1. And straightway coming up out of the water. He was in the water, now he comes out of the water. By the way, we'll talk about that in just a second. Come over, because what they do is they use this text to say that immersion is the proper way. Okay, let's just do it now. They use, the, they use two texts. Mark 1, verse 10, they say, see, the Lord was in the water, and now he's out of the water. Then they come over and they use Acts 8. Come over to Acts 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian. Acts 8 and verse 38. Acts 8, 38. See, if you know what other people are saying, some of this stuff you just kind of get a little kind of funny. Acts 8, 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. Uh, Philip is talking to the eunuch. They've been, they're looking at uh, Isaiah 53. And they, uh, to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and, so, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Do you see the problem there with baptism being immersion? Who went down into the water? Philip and the Ethiopian. And he baptized. That means both Philip and the eunuch. That means Philip, he's immersing himself. See? Because they both, and the reissue is, is verse 39, and when they were come up out of the water, they use that come up out of the water as, see, that's immersion. We put him down, and then he comes up out of the water. But wait a minute. If they both come out of the water, that means Philip had to baptize himself, if you use that definition. That's a problem. He didn't do it to himself. Who did he baptize? The end of verse 38. The eunuch. But see, they used that phrase, he came up out of the water in Mark 1 to say, see, he was immersed and then come up. The problem is Acts 8, they, and they use Acts 8, 39 because they come up out of the water, but Acts 8, 38 teaches too much. I don't know if you catch that. You see, he's not talking about both going down to the water and dunking themselves. He's talking about walking out of the water back onto the shore. So they went down. They usually go in about knee high, you know. By the way, the Jordan River is not a very deep river anyway. In parts of it, it's just a trickle. <laughs> it's just a creek bed, literally. The, you know, the pictures I've seen and study it and looking at it. So the thing is, when, when John the Baptist, come back here to Joshua 4. When John the Baptist is baptizing, it's not an issue of getting down in there and dunking people, immersing, immersing them and pulling them out. By the way, he's doing it in Jordan. When, he, when John baptizes, Joshua 4, when John baptizes, he's doing it in the place that Joshua says is to be done. When the Lord goes to in Mark 1 there, he says, came from uh, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Matthew and Luke and them say the Jordan River. 
or the River Jordan. Usually it's the Jordan River, River Jordan, one of the two. Well, what's Joshua doing? He puts those two memorials there. They're going to bring the ark. The River Jordan is dried up. They go across. He plants 12 stones in the river. Okay? And then he puts 12 stones on the bank, on the, on the west bank. He's marking the place where the Messiah is to cross the Jordan River when he liberates it in his second coming. This is where Elijah leaves the land and where Elisha comes back into the land. See? When in Matthew there, when, the Lord, when John says those stones he can rise up, he's in the Jordan River. He's talking about those 12 stones. He's right there. Look at Joshua 4, verse 18. And it came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan. And the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto, unto dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. Notice that verse very carefully. What did the priests do? They came out, up out of the river, up out of the water. See that? Were come up out of the midst of Jordan. But there was no water in Jordan. And then when they got up on the shore, what happened? The water came back. So when you come back to Mark 1... He's not talking about being, when he talks here about coming out of the water, it's not a verse to tell us about how the baptism is to be performed. Rather, he's, come, he, he's coming out of the water like he's supposed to, where he's going to cross that Jordan River. Why? He's the Messiah. Here he comes. So the question then is, is okay, in Scripture, come over to Ezekiel 36, Here's how baptism is performed. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, 24. Start there. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean, and all your filthiness and, all, uh, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. So how does he baptize? with the water there. It's a sprinkle. So in Scripture, water baptizement is with the sprinkle. And the reason I say that is because in Acts 2, look at Acts 2, Mark 1, he tells us, Mark 1, he tells us, I have the wrong verse written down. Mark 1, oh, there it is, verse, uh, Acts 2.17. Mark 1, he tells us that he's going to baptize with water, and the Lord's going to baptize them with what? The Holy Ghost. But look at Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will, what, pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. So in Scripture, baptizing someone is going to be done by sprinkling, and or by pouring it out on them. How does he baptize them with fire? 
He doesn't sprinkle them with wrath. He pours it out on them. So come back to Mark 1. So when you get into this issue here about John's baptism, you got to jettison the religious tomfoolery. What does Scripture say? What does it mean in Scripture? Identification. How is it done? Sprinkling or pouring. Okay? By the way, the context will always tell you which one it's to be done. When he's talking about it being done, in Acts 2, the days were fully come. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came. Day of Pentecost was fully come. Day of Pentecost has been prophetically, it has been fulfilled. Now, in their calendar, they, all, they continue to do it because they are up here, okay, in their religion. But the fulfillment of it is done. And, all right, back to Mark 1. What does he say? Verse 10, and straightway coming up out of the water. Again, he, he's in about probably shin deep, knee deep at the most. John sprinkles the water on him. What happens? The heavens open. And, he's, and notice carefully how the verse says, he saw the heaven open. Matthew, Luke, and John do not say that. You only read it here in Mark. Because what you're seeing now is the servant is being validated. There's an encouragement here when he, as the servant of the Lord, of the Father, sees the heaven open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. So it tells you the impact the moment is having on the Lord as the servant. He sees the, this encouraging fact of not only the dove coming, but here the heaven open. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, Jesus Christ has, is being identified with the believing remnant through a water ceremony going in the door, and then he's validated. He's empowered by the Father and the Spirit coming on him. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he's received the empowerment and validation from the Father. Now he can go do the end of verse 8, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. See, he can go do that now. Before he couldn't do it, now he can do it again. Is going to descend like a dove. Do you know what a dove is in Scripture? Leviticus 12. It's the poor man's sacrifice. Luke 2 over there, the, uh, Mary and Joseph come to the temple and they come with the two turtle doves. The poor man, Leviticus 12, verse 8. If you, the poor can't afford a lamb, they can come over here and do the dove. You know, they got some other things. So really... What you see here is the Lord identifying himself with the believing remnant, with his people, as the servant who's coming to be the sacrifice for the poor. That meek and lowly one. That's what you're seeing here. See, you're seeing a great picture here. 
Verse 11, And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The ratification from the Father. Now notice carefully, in, if you come back with me to Matthew 3, Matthew 3, verse 17. And then Matthew 3, 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The audience that is being spoken to, the Lord the, the, the Father is validating the Son. And in Matthew 3, he says to the little flock, to the nation of Israel, this is my Son. In Mark 1, by the way, also in Luke 3, he says, thou are my Son. So now, instead of looking to the group, he turns to the Lord and says, you're my Son. There's a validation. As a servant, what does the servant need? Validation from the master. What does the man, the son of man need? The validation from his father. <laughs> okay? What, usually, men, what, what, what does humanity always need from their parents, if you will? Validation. Okay? So there's a tremendous, come back to Mark 1, there's a tremendous issue here. There's a tremendous amount of comfort and in, 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 uh, in encouragement from the Father about who he is and the resources that he now has. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You follow that? Okay? So when you come into this issue here of baptism, John's baptism, the question that always comes up was, why was the Lord baptized? Well, there's basically three reasons. The first one is that Matthew 3 issue of fulfilling all righteousness. Come in, be identified with the believing remnant, establish, be numbered with the transgressions, and be submitting to the will of the Father. That's what we've been looking at. The second one, come over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here's another reason that uh, needs to be, you have to understand. So the first one, to fulfill all the righteousness, the Matthew 3, uh, 15, 16, 17 there, okay? Second one, John 1, verse 29. Let's just start there, verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming, coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. By the way, notice it's sin singular. Everybody, sins of the world. Well, not always. You have to be, be very careful. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. All right? Here's verse 30 is a great verse on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. <laughs> When the babe leaped in Elizabeth's womb, when he was introduced to Mary with the Lord, there's a reason, there's something going on there. Now watch verse 31. And I knew him not. Now watch. This is the second reason. But that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. 
So why, why did the Lord need to get baptized? Yes, to be identified with the believing rod, all that, but also to do what? Be made manifest to Israel. He was to, he was to be identified to Israel as the true shepherd who came through the door. He's coming the right way. Okay? All of Israel is going to see him do what? Not climb over the wall, but come in the right way. Verse 32. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I, look at that. After 400 years of silence, here the Father speaks. And he speaks to John. And he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. Verse 34, and I saw him bear record that this is the Son of God. He's the one brought forth by God to be the Messiah, to be the Redeemer. And John the, bap, bap, the baptism of John identifies him, manifests him to Israel as the true shepherd, as her Messiah, as her Redeemer, Deliverer, Avenger, the, all of the, what the prophets said. Boom, there he is. And how do you know? Because he was down in Jordan getting water baptized. Okay? Now, go back there to Mark 1. So he fulfills all the righteousness. He submits to the will of God, and in doing so, he's made manifest to Israel as the Messiah. Now, number 3, Mark 1, verse 10. And straightway cometh up, uh, he, uh, and straightway cometh up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. The third reason is the issue of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the issue here of him taking on the three offices of the Messiah. Okay? As a king, prophet, as prophet, priest, and king. Those three offices. King David was anointed. A prophet was anointed of God. But the priest wasn't just anointed. There was a what? Exodus 29. There was a what? A washing and then a anointing. And by the way, and then a sacrifice. Sprinkle them. Solidify it with the shedding of blood. By the way, every covenant... It was always solidified with the shedding of blood all the time. Okay? So come back with me to Ezekiel 36 and notice this work out here. Ezekiel 36. We were here earlier. By the way, when you think about the new covenant and you think about Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, you need to have the whole chapter in your mind, not just these little parts, because the whole chapter... Uh, leads you to understand these all the details, okay? Not just Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, but you need to hold the whole. Now, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 gives you the, um, 
uh, the, the, the details of it, the announcement of it. Ezekiel 36 tells you how it's going to be carried out, okay? So Ezekiel 36 tells us how the new covenant is going to function, it's going to operate, and uh, so forth. Verse 16, 36, 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as, a, as the uncleanliness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted. Notice that. What had they done to the land? They defiled it. So what did he do? He dealt with them like a removed woman. He removed them from the land. He scattered them amongst the nation. Okay? That's the first half of the chapter that you learn and read about. What did he do? He purified, he cleaned up the land. But he can't put a defiled people back in the land, so he's got to clean up the people. So how does, how does he clean up the people? Well, the way you deal with a removed woman. And again, you go back to Leviticus 15, and a woman that has an issue of the blood, you know what the first thing they do with that woman? They wash her. They pull her out, they separate her out, but they wash her. <laughs> they baptize her, and then they sprinkle blood on her. They, it's, it's, you go back there and read this, and you begin to see the pictures, and when you see the Lord come up and get baptized, you know what he's doing? He's fulfilling all those pictures. So how's he going to clean the nation up? Verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? He's going to sprinkle them. That's baptism. That baptism of, of repentance for the remission of sins. They're going to clean them up from all their idolatry, all of that Baal worship. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments, and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and off he goes. Notice what they're going to do. He's going to sprinkle them, clean them up, wash them up, ceremonial water baptism, and then he's going to anoint them with the spirit. I'll come back to, to Mark 1. When he anoints them with the Spirit, after that's done, then what's he going to go do? He's going to go park them in the land, in that kingdom. Now, they're not in the land until they get cleaned up. How, how does he do that? He separates them away from the apostate nation, the idolatry, he then identifies them together through the issues of water baptism. And then he puts his spirit in them. He anoints them with the spirit, Acts chapter 2. And in Mark, with the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He's, he's the one that's going to do it. Okay? Verse 12. And immediately the Spirit driveth him in the wilderness. Now we'll pick up here next time because the hour is up. But notice, immediately. <laughs> Mark ain't wasting time. He didn't talk anything about nothing. You go to Mark, you, 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 uh, immediately he's driven, verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Notice that, immediately. Now, Matthew and Luke describe the temptation. John doesn't, Matthew and Luke do. Matthew is the dispensational viewpoint, that's why it looks different than Luke. Because Luke is the doctrinal dis, uh, viewpoint. Luke puts it together so that he can say he was tempted in all points common to man. Why? Because he had the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life thrown in front of him. That's Luke. He's the man. The king, a little different. Dispensational thing, pr presentation. But again, notice immediately. He's getting on with it. No hesitation. But also, there's no hesitation on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take a few more minutes. We'll just look at this. Okay? There's no hesitation by the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to get on with it. He wants to go on and get into the battle. Think about this. He's been 33 year, 30 years sorry, waiting to do. Now he's on the scene. He's been acknowledged. He's been made manifest to everybody. And he's like, let's get on with this. What does a servant do? Sir, house cleaner shows up. What do you want me to clean? And the what? Goes at it. Doesn't wait and sit and drink coffee and, you know, sit out back and do that. He gets on with it. So he's going to demonstrate who he is. And where does he go? Out into the wilderness. Bring on Satan. <laughs> um, uh, Matthew and I think in Luke, they call him dev the devil. Well, that's who we're dealing with. But I want you to notice something in verse 13. With the wild beast. Because that's an interesting thing here. In, in this issue of him demonstrating who he is. Come back to Job 39, just real quick. Do you remember someone else who had to deal with a den of wild beasts? He spent the night with the wild beast. Daniel in the lion's den. And what did Leo the lion do, as dad calls him? He goes over, and what happens? Curls right up, everything's good, right? You got Job 39, run back to Isaiah 11. It's very, this is very instructive here. We'll take five minutes. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, we move, um, we'll start there in verse 6. When you think about, well, Isaiah 11, verse 6, we're in the kingdom. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling there together, and a little child shall, shall lead them. That is a direct fulfillment of Genesis 1, verse 28, when God commanded man to go out and conquer and subdue and have control over creation, the the created world. 
Verse 7, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hands on the cockatrice den, then shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and off you go. You know what? In the kingdom, something has changed in nature. All right? When Noah came off the boat, the animal creation had the fear of man in their nostrils. They ran. Go back, come on over to Job, Job 39. We'll get a verse in 38 first. When man, in the kingdom, man now has the ability to fulfill Genesis 1.28, to have dominion over creation. Every creature in the earth. And when man functions how God wants him to function, guess what he's going to have? He's going to have Daniel-like control over Leo the lion, the wild beast. That is exactly what Mark 1.13 is talking about with the Lord Jesus Christ when he goes out into the wilderness. The wild beasts come up, and you know what? They know who he is. The animals are not dumb. They know that he is the Messiah. They know that the, the animal creation recognizes who he is. Now, the animal creation, they're designed to be servants. They know who the master servant is. There he sits. That's why Mark 1.13 mentions wild beasts, because what's just happened John recognizes him, manifests him to, the world, to Israel. The Father has acknowledged him, and the Spirit has anointed him, and now creation has come up and said, yep, he's the guy. Now, if you look at John, thir uh, John, John Job 38, start there. Job 38, verse 3, God's talking to Job. He says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer, th me, uh, answer thou me. When he says, gird up the loins like a man, he's not sitting there saying, suck it up, buttercup, let's go, be a man, toughen it up. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he's telling Job, you need to think how, like a man, like how, how I created man to think, which was Genesis 1.28. Have dominion and subdue, be fruitful and multiply and replenish and subdue it. You're the guy to be in control. You're the one that should have dominion over. Think like a man, like I created man to think like. Now come to chapter 39, 39.1. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? Should he know the times? Yes, but he doesn't. Because what the Lord's now going to do, verse 5, who hath sent out the wild ass free? Who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Verse 9. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee? See, the creation was there to serve. Or abide by thy crib. Verse 13. Gavest thou the goodling wings unto the peacocks, or wings and feathers unto the ostrich? Verse 13. Uh, let's see. 
Well, verse 15, you got the, the wild beasts may break them. Verse 18, you've got a horse. Verse 20, you've got a grasshopper. Verse 26, uh, you've got a hawk. Verse 27, an eagle. All the animals. See that? All of the animals should have been under man's control. There's one in there, he talks about the wild ass not being able to control him, and you should be able to control him. <laughs> okay? But none do what man tells them to do today. They should have, yeah, but do they know? Why? Because there's been a, something's wrong. Creation has been marred. Sin is entered in. And when the Messiah comes, come back there to Mark 1. We'll finish up here. I took a little more than five minutes. When, G, when Messiah comes, what happened? Well, he goes out, he's tempted in the wilderness, he's done, and the wild beasts come up to him, and the angels come and minister, and the wild beast, the, the animal creation recognized who he was. He's the master, he's the redeemer, he's the Messiah. So they come and do the opposite of what they're doing in Job. That's fantastic. And that's what Mark's saying here. Behold, Isaiah 42.1, behold thy servant. Okay? And the problem ultimately is going to be that Israel didn't get it. And mankind as a whole doesn't get it. Now, we'll stop because it is time and... We'll come back up through here, and then we'll get into verse 14 and 15. We're going to spend some time in verse 14 and 15 because of what's going on. But don't miss the identification and what John's baptism is all about. One, it's to fulfill all righteousness. Two, it's to manifest him to Israel. And it's three, for him to be the Messiah, the one that's going to fulfill the new covenant. And the wild beast got it. And old dumb thump mankind can't get it because they're more worried about themselves. Okay? All right. We're a little longer than an hour, but you'll live. All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the study, for the look into it, to the scriptures, and to see these, these, the little details here and just rejoice in who the Son is. In your name we pray. Amen.